your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We've been making our way through this book, and uh, we're in the fourth chapter. Uh, as we begin today, every text in God's Word is, is vastly important for us to know. Um, but today, uh, as, as we're in this text, I want us to see just the gravity of Matthew 4. Um, in this text, Jesus will face the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. For some of you, this is a very familiar text. For some of you, it might be new. Um, I'm a little echoey up here still. Can you make, it's always awkward to hear yourself really well. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that, that there's an enemy and, and he's called the devil. Uh, you also might know him as Satan. Satan means adversary. Um, he hates, he hates God, he hates God's people, he hates everyone who's made in the image of God, and, and just to be clear, every person born in this world is made in the image of God, and, and so every single person is in the crosshairs of Satan. He does not like you, he does not love you, all he desires is ultimate harm for you. If you're an unbeliever, then there is nothing more and what he would love than to distract you from the truth of the gospel with, with worldly, physical treasures. He would want you to think that belief in God is absurd, that it's unintelligent, and that the idea that you need a God is just a crutch to get through this world, and it's for weak people, and so do not believe in him. And if you are a believer then he hates you all the more for you have believed in Jesus Christ, which means you've been adopted in the family of God. You've been made a citizen in God's kingdom, which now means you live in opposition to his rule and to his will, and he wants to destroy your life. He wants to ruin your life, destroy your marriage, and plunge you into every addiction that possible. The devil has many, many different arrows. He has more tricks than actors have costumes. He entices your hearts with lying whispers. He can open doors. He can use people and situations. And he can twist scripture in order to deceive us. We often, when we hear the word devil, we think of Satan, we, we might think of just this gruesome figure with horns. Scripture uh, describes him as a lion, a snake, a dragon. But I think it would be best for us to think of him as 2 Corinthians 11 does, that he's described as an angel of light. He is very, very deceptive. He can be breathtakingly beautiful, and his temptations can sound so good and so right. And so we come into Matthew 4, where all of a sudden we're, we're engaged immediately into this just spiritual battle, this war between, in a sense, Christ and Satan. And so this is a wake-up call. For, for people, for humanity, especially for the church, when sometimes as we, we just begin going through life and we begin just kind of forgetting that there's a battle out there, there's a spiritual battle, and we're being reminded today that there's an enemy who wants to steal, steal kill, and destroy us. Matthew 4 is not given, though, so that we would fear the devil. As we come to this passage, we're made aware of this battle, made aware of this war, made aware of this enemy who wants to kill us and destroy us. We are not to apply this with fear, but rather this is given so that we would see that Jesus is the true son of God who has come and defeated Satan. That's what we're supposed to see. 
So there is a war, and Jesus came, and he defeated Satan. Satan is not supreme. He's not all-powerful. Jesus is, and he defeated him in the wilderness. He will defeat him at the cross, and when he returns again, he will judge him and destroy him for all of eternity in the lake of fire. Satan does not win. So we know that. We have already seen the whole picture, and yet in Matthew 4, Matthew's bringing us in. There's a battle, and it And every single person is engaged in this, whether they know it or not. And so here in Matthew 4, we're going to see that Jesus defeated Satan and what that means. And then we're also going to see that how Jesus overcame him gives us instruction for how we also resist temptation. So the main point this morning is that Jesus is the righteous son of God who triumphed over temptation so we also would be victorious. And so uh, I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. We're going to read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We stand each week as we read God's word uh, because this is his word inspired by God that he gave it to us. So we'd be encouraged and instructed so we'd know how to live a godly life in the midst of temptations and trials. So here we go. Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you. If you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. God, we thank you for your word. And Father, I ask, give us ears this morning that we would hear the truth of your text. May we agree with the Apostle Paul that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and rulers of this world. Give us eyes to see the trickery and lies of Satan, and also the beauty and hope that is in your word. May we see that all of our hope is in Jesus, who is the one true righteous Son of God. Jesus came and he defeated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death. God, may we trust in him today. May we walk like your son, Jesus. Father, you promise in the book of James that if we submit ourselves to you and resist the devil, he will flee from us. So God, show us any sins that we've committed. Bring us to repentance. Cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. God, if anyone here is in a spiritual slumber, I pray that your spirit, through your word this morning, would wake us up that we would live with zeal and vigor for your name. God, may we see that you alone are glorious, worthy of all honor and praise. 
And God, may we live that you would be magnified with every breath that we take. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so this is just a, a quick nine-point sermon. It's perfect. You know, that's what you're hoping for. Um, we're going to look at three questions, three temptations, and then three truths. What's interesting is I wrote it out like that, and then I realized that there was three, 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 and I was like, well, that's kind of cool. So we'll just go with it. Uh, so we'll start out three questions. It's always good to ask questions when you come into God's word. Question number one, what is the context, uh, context of Jesus' temptations? We have to understand the context if we're going to know what's happening here. And so in chapter three, which we were in last week, in fact, last couple weeks, Jesus was baptized, and when he came up out of the water, remember what happened. The dove comes upon him. The Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, anointing him and empowering him for ministry. And then we hear the thunderous voice of God boom forth and say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now notice how the devil begins two of his temptations. Verse 3 and verse 5. If you are the Son of God, what did God just say? This is my beloved son, and right with Jesus' hair still wet, now in the wilderness, right on the tails of the, of the baptism, well, if you're the son of God, there's identity questions here. Satan's saying, well, let's, if you really are, then let's prove it. Let's see what happens. Now, it's interesting when we begin to consider Jesus as the son of God. If we back up for a moment from the book of Matthew and, and kind of look at the Bible as a whole, we might remember that Adam was the first man that was created. And in Luke chapter 3, giving the genealogy of Jesus, he goes all the way back to Adam. And when we get to Adam, how is Adam referred to? The son of God. He was in the garden surrounded by pleasures and comforts, and yet he sinned when he was tempted by the devil. So Adam failed. If we were then to consider another son of God, we would see that Israel was called God's son, corporately as the people of God. And so God calls them out of Egypt, baptizes them in the Red Sea, brings them into the wilderness for 40 years where they face the temptations of the devil. And what did they do? Well, like Adam, they sinned and disobeyed God. So now Jesus comes the true son of God comes out of Egypt, is baptized, goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he will face the temptations of the devil. Did you see what Matthew's doing here? Remember the story of Israel? Out of Egypt, baptized, goes into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. But where Israel failed, Jesus will not. So here's the question that, that Matthew's, in a sense, setting us up for. Will Jesus fail like Adam? Will he fail like Israel? Or is he the true righteous son of God who came to save us? Can we put our hope in this son? Is he the one who can actually redeem us? Is he the righteous king? So we first and foremost must understand that these temptations are not about how you and I overcome temptation. We'll get there. But first and foremost, 
Jesus is the righteous son of God who overcame temptation and therefore he is able to save us. If he fails, he's not the righteous king. But if he succeeds, oh, then we can put all of our hope in this king. Amen indeed. So that's question number one. Question number two, can Jesus be tempted? You probably have wondered that. You certainly have heard people say that. If Jesus is really the son of God, full of infinite power, are these even temptations? Well, let me just say this. If, if Jesus cannot be tempted, then this is just like an elaborate charade that is absolutely meaningless for us. There's really no point to even have it in God's word. Jesus would be no different than Superman. See, I can use Superman because he's DC. When I use a negative superhero <laughs> illustration, it's always going to be DC. But my positive superhero illustrations will always be Marvel, just so you know how that works. So if Jesus could, could not be tempted, then he would, he would be like Superman. Remember, when Superman's on earth, he, he's known as Clark Kent. Clark Kent looks like you. He looks like me. He acts weak. But is he weak? Does he get hurt? No. He's not like us at all. He knows no pain. Clark Kent is not human. And if Jesus cannot be tempted, then he is not human. And if he is not human, then he cannot be our king. He cannot be our substitute. He cannot be our high priest. He cannot be our savior. And so scripture testifies that Jesus is truly God. He is God, but yet he is also truly human. And so when it, we are told that he hasn't eaten for 40 days, we are meant to realize Jesus is physically weak and he is very hungry right now. He's alone. He's weak. He's in a wilderness where the most lethal adversary of all humanity now comes to attack him. The deck is stacked against him in every way. And, and it's good to remember Adam, the first man, where was he when he was tempted? In a garden surrounded by every comfort and pleasure. And yet now Jesus comes no pleasures, no comforts around him at all. You see, resisting temptation is not about circumstances, and it's not about our physical strength. Jesus defeated Satan because he's empowered by the Spirit and trusted in God. And if you have trusted in Christ, then you too have the Spirit of God, which means you can also overcome temptation. So that's question number two. Yes, he can be tempted because he is man. Number three, does God tempt us? Kind of a question that arises out of the text. I mean, we have the Spirit anointing Jesus, empowering Jesus, leading Jesus into the wilderness. So is God tempting Jesus to sin? Does God tempt you to sin? What well, we're told here in, in Matthew 4, that he's tempted by the devil. So is this just like tomato, tomato? I mean, Jesus, the Spirit led him there. So it's clear the devil's the one who tempts him. And, and in God's word, we see like in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. There's no deceptive purposes in God. 
God is not creating ways for you to fall. So in whatever trial, whatever situation you're in, God's not going, oh man, if I bring them this one, they're totally going to fall and stumble. It's not what's happening. So God does not tempt you, but he does test you. James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 will say, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, when he is tempted, is lured and enticed by his, own de- by his own desires. So God doesn't tempt you, but he will test you, and there is a big difference. Satan tempts you to destroy you because he hates you, God will test you because he loves you and wants to perfect you and glorify you. There's way difference here. In fact, also in James, this is what we read in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James will say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you would what? May be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. So the goal of testing is glory, that you become like Christ. So God will place you in circumstances, in trials, to test you, to reveal the character that is there, that you would trust in him and grow in your faith. And yet, at the same point, those very trials that God uses for testing, Satan will use for temptation, hoping that you will fail. So whatever you're going through right now, know that God is ultimately desiring to use it for your good. That you would grow in your faith, that you would not not be lacking in anything. That in this trial, through his spirit, by the giving of grace, that you would grow and become more and more like Christ. So we've looked at three questions, kind of giving a little bit of groundwork for understanding the text that we're in and temptations as a whole. So let's look at the three temptations that Jesus encounters. Number one, there's the temptation of pleasure. In verse three, we're told that the devil is called the tempter. Again, Matthew is wanting us to know everything that Satan does here is in opposition to God's will. He is not wanting us to follow God. He's wanting to tempt us and trick us and deceive us. Now, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's probably pretty hungry. Now, if this is you and me, we'd be hangry, right? Like, if you, if you go a meal, like, we get, like, without food, we get a little upset. If you go a day, we get really upset, right? Like, we get, we get a little crazy. And Jesus has gone 40 days, but he's not angry. He's just hungry. So Satan now shows up, and basically he says, why don't you turn these stones into some loaves of bread? Now, I want you to think about, what's wrong with this? Why would this be a sin? Jesus clearly has the power to do this. In fact, later in Matthew 14, Jesus is going to have about 5,000 plus people surrounding him. He's going to take a few loaves of, of bread and some fish and multiply it. So it feeds everyone. So if he can do that, what's wrong with him right now making a little snack in the wilderness? You see, the devil's trying to fixate Jesus' eyes on the physical. What he has and what he doesn't have. And he's saying, Jesus, you're, you're hungry. Food is good. 
why don't you just do this little miracle? After all, you're the son of God. You deserve it. And if God was a good father, he'd give it to you. But instead, you're surrounded by dirt and by stones. You see, Satan wants to see ourselves as a slave to our desires and our pleasures. And we see this tactic all throughout the Bible. Like, I encourage you, like, just, just think about this later. Esau or Eve ate the fruit instead of obeying God. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. Samson gave up the secret to his strength out of lust. David committed adultery and then murder out of lust. Absalom betrayed his entire family to, to gain the throne. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Like all throughout the Bible, we see people just desiring what they want, hungering for it, being a slave to it, and doing anything and everything they can to satisfy their desires. And when we are a slave to our desires, then we begin to think that God must give us what we want. Otherwise, he is not a good father. And if he's not a good father, what should we definitely not do? Worship him, love him, or trust him. We think that God's holding back on us. After all, if he was good, he would give us what we want, when we want, how we want it. And so G Satan is very quick to point out what Jesus does not have right now and what he deserves. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's hungry, surrounded by rocks. Why has God not given you bread, Jesus? Maybe he's not as good as you think. Maybe you need to trust in yourself and do what you need to do. So how does Jesus respond? He goes to Deuteronomy 8, which speaks of Israel's time in the wilderness. Let me just read. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. Let me just read it, the, the, the full passage. And it says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. It's talking about when Israel was in the wilderness. He says, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So don't miss this. Why did God place Israel in the wilderness? So they would get hungry. The purpose of the trial was to expose their weakness and show that they get hungry. And so why would he do this? So they would then learn that God will provide for every need for them. He then gives them manna, which is, which is basically bread. He provides for them. In doing this, God teaches Israel, I am the good father. I will provide for your every need in this wilderness. And God will place us in trials and situations. And so whatever you're in right now, he places us in these things. So we would learn that he's good father he knows us and sees us and loves us, and he will provide for us. And the question is, is, will you believe that God will provide for you? Do you believe that God sees you, knows your needs, and is and will provide for you? Right now in our culture, we say that your desires are what define you. If you have homosexual or transsexual desires, then fulfill them because that is who you are, so you must fulfill them. Our society, our culture will say, 
pursue sex, buy cars and houses, binge drink on alcohol and Netflix, Netflix, play video games constantly, be addicted to drugs, be consumed with your Amazon wish list. Everything on the other side of the fence is greener and you deserve it. We're surrounded by everything that we want. And Satan says you should have all of it. Satan wants us to think that if God doesn't give it to us, he's the one holding back on us. He's not good. He's not glorious. But I want you to think for a moment. Does God really hold back on us? Well, just give the Christian answer. But think about it. Does he hold back on us? Think about it. So it's interesting that we're talking about bread here. Satan says, make some bread. Why bread? In the Old Testament, God provides bread. In fact, Jesus in, in, in the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. Where we're to pray, trusting in God every day to give us our, our desires and our needs, the very things that will sustain us. And what's interesting is if we keep thinking about bread, we'll realize that Bethlehem, the place of Jesus' birth, actually means the house of bread. And if we remember in John chapter 6, Verse 51, Jesus will say, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give you for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, God gives his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so we could be saved, so we could be forgiven and not experience eternal destruction. God holds nothing back. He gives us the bread of life, his very son, so we would be with him for all of eternity. In fact, every week as we come to the end of our sermon, we come to communion. And one of the things we pick up is, is bread. And the bread represents the body of Christ. It reminds us that the good and perfect Father has extravagantly given us everything that we need. And most importantly, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're being reminded as we take communion of what Jesus did. Obedience to God is far more satisfying than finite, trivial pleasures that will pass away. This bread thing is pretty important. When we start stepping back and looking at what God's word says about bread, we're not just talking about food. We're talking about what we need at the most. And God knows that and has provided it for us in his son and will meet every single one of our needs and sustain us. If you have trusted in Christ, then you are not a slave to your desires. You're a child of God, and he promises to provide for you. And you can know that he will because he gave his son to die on the cross for you. So that's temptation number one. Look to your pleasures. Temptation number two, security. In verse 5, Satan takes Jesus to the, to the pinnacle of the Jerusalem temple. This would be the, the highest point in the city. It would overlook the Kidron Valley. It would be 400 plus feet drop. It was said, Josephus, the historian said, if you looked over, you could not even see the ground, and you'd be dizzy if you even tried to look. And so what does, Je what does Satan say as he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of Jerusalem, he says, jump, throw yourself down. Now, does that sound like a temptation? 
I go, I'm not sure I'm tempted to do this. There's no way am I thinking about jumping. Some of you are like scared of heights. Like I'm not going up there anyway. <laughs> Much less if I go up to the top of some giant mountain, would I be tempted at all to jump off? Well, Satan is not trying to get Jesus to commit suicide here. He's much, much tricky. He's much more deceptive than that. You see, on this peak of Jerusalem, Satan now begins to quote scripture to him. And what's really interesting is Satan knows that this scripture ultimately does point to Jesus. He wrongly applies it, but he rightly knows who it's pointed to. So let us not think that Satan does not know Scripture and does not know how to use Scripture. And so he, he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. It basically says, look, if you jump, Scripture says the angels will catch you so your foot won't even touch a single stone on that ground. So what's happening here? So what's this temptation? Well, in essence, Satan is saying, Jesus... You're, you're on this great mission. Don't you want to know that God's with you? Don't you want to know God will keep you safe? Don't you want to know that God is a strong tower, a place of refuge? Perhaps before you go forward with this, we should ask for a sign. I mean, he hasn't provided bread for you. So we see he's already holding back. So before we go forward, let's just make sure He's actually with us. Let's make sure we're, we're safe. Let's make sure he will protect us. In other words, Satan is saying, let's walk by sight and not by faith. If you're going to do this great work for God, Jesus, maybe he should just do a little work for you and just prove that he's actually here with you. So think about this. How many Christians are paralyzed and their obedience because they refuse to trust in God. They constantly ask, God, are you there? Are you faithful? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Will you save me? Will you keep me safe and secure? I've heard countless Christians, countless parents say, I'll be involved more in church and missions once my kids get older, but right now I just need to be safe. I need to be responsible. Many people wrestle with assurance of their salvation, always wondering, God, is he faithful? Does he still love me? In the midst of a trial, how many times do people say, God, have you left me? Do you see me? Do you know me? Or how about this? God, if, if you want me to do this, then you just need to open up doors. And what we really mean by open doors is that Everything now needs to be really easy and free from any pain and any danger. But I want you to notice something. Satan quotes scripture. He knows God's word. He knows how to manipulate it. He also knows how to open doors. So we should never think that a mere open door is an automatically the sign that this is God's will for our life. Our litmus test to God, to God's will, must not be, am I safe and free from danger? After all, Jesus will tell his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, as he sends them out, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. God never promises us a pain-free life here on earth. Never does he promise us that. And so here, 
Satan's just buddying up next to Jesus saying, hey, let's just make sure we're safe. Let's make sure God's going to hold up his end of the bargain. And so how does Jesus respond? Once again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6, verse 16. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is in the context of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. In fact, God has brought Israel out of Egypt. And if you remember, he did that out of these miraculous signs. He decimates and destroys the Egyptian nation. In fact, after Israel comes out of Egypt, they follow them into the Red Sea where God will fully destroy the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. God will then bring them uh, into the wilderness and lead them by a pillar of, uh, a pillar of cloud. Pillar of cloud, sounds weird. But a, a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gives them water from a rock. He gives them meat to eat. And they grumble, and they grumble, and they grumble. And so in Deuteronomy 6, he's, he's quoting from a passage where after God has done all these things and all these signs and demonstrated his power and his presence with Israel, they again say, God, I don't think you see me. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Are you still there? Are you going to provide for us? They're saying, God, give me another sign. Prove once again that you're actually here Prove to me that you'll actually take care of us. Listen, when, when we grumble, we are testing God. We're demanding that God perform signs to prove his faithfulness. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, some of you might be starting your Bible reading plans and you start in Genesis, or so soon you'll be in Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and how many of those adult Israelites that came out of Egypt made it into the promised land? Two. 600,000 men. Estimates of 1.3 million people altogether. Two men. Joshua, Caleb. Why did all the other guys not make it? Because they grumbled. And they tested God. And they did not believe God. And so Satan's now coming up to Jesus. Maybe just one more sign. Maybe God hasn't proved himself enough. Maybe he needs to do a little bit more to show you he'll be with you. Let's not take one step forward until God steps forward and makes it known that he's going to hold up his end of the bargain. You see how... See the temptation? Listen, we show our trust in God by our obedience to God. Jesus proved his trust not by asking for a sign or trying to play it safe. Jesus, like a lamb, went to the cross so he would be killed so you and I could be saved by his death and resurrection. Safety is not our refuge. God is our refuge. We need to know that. 
We do not need to test him. We look to his word, and in his word, we see his faithfulness. God has given us 66 books testifying of his goodness, testifying of his presence, testifying us of his power, so we can look to the word and say, yes, I will obey God. I do not need another sign. He has given me an abundance of signs, above all, the sending of his son Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again so I could be forgiven. If Jesus isn't a good enough sign and we certainly have no faith in God. So that's the temptation here. One more sign. I need more security. Show me that you're there. I will not take a step forward until you take a step towards me, God. Number three, the temptation of comfort. In verse 8, Satan brings Jesus to another high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. In verse 9, he says, all these I'll give to you. If you'll just fall down and worship me. Now, some have said, can Satan really make this offer? Does he really own all the kingdoms of the world? So, two quick answers. Um, for one, it's not much of a temptation if it's not real. Again, we're, we're just dealing with charades here. If we're like, well, I couldn't really do it. Jesus could be like, well, that's it's not really a real temptation. I mean, you, you could tempt me with a million dollars to risk my life by doing some feat of strength, right? But if you don't have a million dollars, there's no temptation. If it's not real, then there's no temptation behind it. So yes, it is real, and we know that because, number two, Satan is said in God's word to be the ruler of this world. We're told that all of humanity follows after the sinful, rebellious spirit of Satan. So Satan really is saying, look, if you come and fall down for me, I will make sure everyone in this world worships you. All you have to do is worship me. Satan is offering the crown without the cross. Satan will do anything to keep Jesus from going to the cross. After all, the mission of Jesus is that he would go to the cross, he would die for our sins, rescuing us from the kingdom of Satan, bringing us into the kingdom of life, that we would spend forever and all of eternity with God, enjoying him. But what if Jesus could have all the allegiance of the peoples apart from the cross? Just, just now, just think. Think about these temptations now. Jesus, you're hungry. God hasn't taken care of your own needs. He, haven't, he hasn't even given you food. He's not even giving you a sign that he's with you. And now he wants you to go and, and die a horrible, gruesome death on a cross so people could worship him? Look, Jesus, I'll give you all the peoples right now, and you don't even need to go to the cross. I'll save you all the pain, all the hurt, all the trial. What's, what's Satan doing right here? He's taking the role of God. I'm the good father. Trust in me. I'm worthy of all worship. I'm worthy of all glory. You don't need a cross. I'll give you everything you came for. Let me ask you. What would you do? What would, what would you do if Satan promised you a pain-free life? Would you bow before him if Satan said, I will give you everything you want? A life where your kids obey you all the time. A life where your spouse 
perfectly meet your needs. The sun shines at all times. Your neighbors are kind. There's food on the table. Your bank account is full. No trials, no temptations, no disease, no health issues, no, no pains. Would you bow before Satan if that offer was on the table? Listen, Satan has no problem filling your life with good things if it means you won't believe in the cross of Jesus. He, he loves the person who has a great family, who, who has, has strong values, loves social justice, promotes homeschooling, is pro-life, attends church every week. Satan has no problem with the person who wants to be really moral. Check all the boxes. Yep, I did this. Yep, I did this. I'm a good person. As long as they don't believe in the cross. But there's only one catch. If you bow before Satan, you will spend all of eternity suffering in hell. You see, Satan isn't actually looking out for the good of Jesus. And he certainly never looks out for your good and my good with whatever temptation he offers. He only looks out for his best interest. The, the Puritan, Thomas Watson, said this, Satan promises the best but pays the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God pays as he promises for all his payments are, pu- are made in pure gold. In fact, we, we see this truth played out in Proverbs 7. I, I love Proverbs 7. It's this amazing pic- picture of temptation. There's this man, and, he, and he's walking down the street, and temptation begins to call for sexual morality. We're told this adulterous woman is out in the streets, and he's calling out to him, saying, come, my husband is gone. No one will know. Nothing bad will happen to you. Come on in here. And this is what it says in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Well, Satan will promise you whatever it is that you want. And he might even give it to you in this life, but it will cost you absolutely everything. So how again does Jesus respond? He again quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Later, Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus will say something similar in chapter 2, verse 37. He'll say, the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Satan promises immediate comfort, but will result in eternal agony and torment. But God promises temporary pain that results in eternal glory, joy, happiness, peace, and unsurpassable pleasure. And so Jesus shows that suffering for God's glory is far more satisfying than, and enjoyable than basking in worldly comforts that result in fire and destruction. He's like, I, I will go to the cross. I will walk through the trials and temptations of this world because my God is good and he is glorious and he will meet every single one of my needs in them. And in the end, I will spend all of eternity with him in paradise. 
If comfort is your God, then Satan is your God. Jesus is warning us, we must, our goal must never be for comfort, but we must please and honor God with our life. And when our goal is the very glory of God, we will share in the infinite riches of God for all of eternity. So those are the temptations that Jesus faces. So let me just give three truths, just kind of as we, as we think about them. Number one, temptation is temporary. In chapter 4, verse 11, at the end, we're told that Satan leaves defeated. And then then what happens right after Satan leaves? The angels come and they begin ministering to him. That word minister, it means they they serve him. They're like table waiters bringing food to Jesus. Satan has said, why don't you make yourself food in in your timing? And Jesus said, no, no, I'll wait on God's timing. And, And here we see as he has resisted temptation, now the trial is over and God sends forth his angels and they minister and they take care of Jesus and they bring him food. God has, Jesus has trusted in God and God in his perfect provision has provided in his timing all that Jesus needed. Don't miss this. Your, your, your temptation is temporary. Whatever trial you're in, it's temporary. When we're in the midst of a trial, it feels like it's forever, and we might see no end in sight. But there is a time limit to it. We don't know when and how that actually will occur, but it's not eternal. What God promises you if you trust in him, eternal joy is what you will experience. Eternal life is what he gives you. Eternal satisfaction is what he gives you. Eternal riches in his son, Jesus Christ. Your trial is temporary. Let us never think that our trials are unending. We can trust in God. Trials are temporary. Number two, God gives grace to all his children. We cannot forget that. God gives grace to all of his children. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Many of you know this verse. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. You need to come back to this verse regularly, have it memorized, so when you're in the trial and you're beginning to go, is he there? Yes. How do I know? Because he's faithful. Scripture says he's faithful. It shows that he's faithful. He sent his son Jesus to show his faithfulness. He is faithful. He's not the one tempting us, but he will be sure that whatever temptation we're going through will not be beyond our abilities. God will always provide the way of escape, but escape does not mean the absence of trial. I think this is where we, we kind of stop reading 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We're like, oh, good. He, gives, he won't ever let us be tempted beyond our abilities. He'll give us escape. Perfect. I love that. But then it says that... But with the temptation, who will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God gives you grace to endure the trial. That's how we escape it. That's how we make our way through the trial. Not the absence of it, not be beaming out of it, but by going through the trial. Let me just give you two, two things that God gives us at this time so that we would have endurance. Number one, you have the Spirit of God. 
And we see that Jesus, anointed, empowered by the Spirit, goes into the wilderness where he's hungry, he's weak, he's alone. He has nothing with him at all except the Spirit of God. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you can overcome all the temptations that Satan brings. So if you trust in Christ, remember that you have the Spirit of God. The full power of God is at work in you, that you would be able to resist the temptations of Satan. Number two, you have the Word of God. It's no coincidence that Jesus uses Scripture at every point of his response to to Satan. And what's interesting is he only uses like two chapters from one book in the Bible. Like, I don't want to, like, stretch the meaning of that too much. But we got 66 books here. And Jesus showed us that just in one encounter with Satan, he can stay in one book in just two chapters of that and resist all the temptations of, Jesus, of Satan. And we've been given 66 books of truth about who God is that we can overcome any and every temptation that comes our way. So I think one of the applications would surely be know the Bible. And we know that's one of the applications because what does the Spirit of God always use in our life? God's Word. The Spirit uses God's Word so that you would come to faith, grow in your faith, and live out your faith. The Spirit always uses God's Word in your life for the accomplishment of His purposes. And so if we're going to be wise, if we're going to resist the temptations of Satan, we need to know God's Word. I love resolutions. You haven't made a resolution. Maybe one of your resolutions is, man, this year I'm just going to be in God's Word. Maybe you read the whole Bible. Maybe you just read the New Testament or Old Testament. Whatever the plan is, just be in the Word. Know the Word. This is the very means in which the Spirit uses that we would overcome every single temptation. So if you're in a trial right now and you're going, man, I just wish God would give me a little help. He did. You have the spirit in you that would use this word in your life, and you live in a really cool place called America, which has millions of Bibles. Like, there's other countries where it's really hard to come across the Bible, where they will literally tear out one page, pass it from person to person, and memorize it, because that's all they have access to. And we have an abundant access to not only tangible Bibles, but millions of digital Bibles probably on our phones at all times. Know God's word. There's no excuse for us not knowing God's word. Number three, last truth. Glory awaits those who trust God. Do not forget this truth. There's a ton of scriptures that we could look at here. Let me just give you one. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. I love Colossians 3. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And so just think about these verses. Verse 2, set your minds on things above not on things that are on earth. That's how we live every life as Christians. Set our minds on things above, on Christ, on the very throne room of God, not on the things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, meaning you're secure in Christ. And then he says this, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him in glory. The promise is one day Jesus will return again. At that time, all trials, all temptations, all pains, all sufferings are done for the believer forever. And he says, you'll be made like Jesus because you'll see him as he is. You'll be fully and absolutely glorified with Christ. Unending joy, insurpassable happiness and peace with God at all times. That's the promise that he makes. So he says, yes, you're, you're in the trial today. 
And on earth, you're either going in a trial, coming out of a trial, or you're in a trial. It's the three places you're always in on earth. And God promises, I'll give you, I'll give you grace at every moment of those trials. I'll provide for all that you need. I'll give you the bread that you need. And when you question it, look to the cross. That's the only sign you need. Look to the cross and know that glory awaits you. Do not think you need physical comforts and pleasures in this world. It's not that they're necessarily wrong. But they never need to be our God because God is our God. And he promises us his infinite riches for all of eternity if we will seek him and glorify him. So know, yes, in this world, there is suffering. And there is trials, but he gives us grace. So we would show that his glory is far greater than any comforts that this world could promise. Every day that you're on this earth, you're going to face the lies of Satan. Do not, do not forget that. They can come from, from people, from situations, and they can sound like your own thoughts as he whispers them into your very soul. He wants you to live for worldly pleasures. He'll promise you the moon, but he cannot save you. He will only condemn you. But Jesus proves here in the wilderness he's the righteous son of God, perfectly overcame the temptations of Satan, lived in perfect righteousness, trusted completely in the Spirit, and obeyed God so he could be our king, so he could be our Savior. So no matter what we're in in life, we could look to Christ and know, I will trust in him. The very grace that God gave him has now been won by him for me so I can live in obedience right now to God. So live for Christ if you've trusted him, the spirit of God is in you, that you can overcome temptation at all times. If you've not trusted in Christ, I urge you to do so today. Believe in him. Confess that he is Lord, that he is Savior, and that there is hope and life in him alone. Let me pray, and we'll take communion. Father, we come to you now, and we praise you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross. We praise you that he came and he conquered Satan in the wilderness. He conquered Satan at the cross, and one day you will come and fully judge him and throw him into the lake of fire where he will no longer entice believers. God, your spirit was upon Jesus that he would overcome all temptation, and you have given us your spirit also and your word that we would also resist temptation. God, may we not fall prey to the lies, the trickery, and the deceptions of Satan, but may we trust in you every day, knowing that you give us our daily bread, knowing that your grace is sufficient, knowing that you are glorious, knowing that you are the good Father who will provide for every need, that you are with us at every step, that you will never leave us, and that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes as you bring us into your eternal presence that we would never again experience trial or temptations or suffering or pain. God, may comfort never be, our go may never be our God. May we worship you with all abandonment. May we love you. May we pursue you. God, may we remind one another as the church 
that you are worthy of all glory and honor. May we help each other to keep our minds on you, to set our minds on you at all times. And that even in the trial, when the weight feels heavy, that we would remember you are faithful. And you will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. And you will give grace that we would endure the trial. God, there are people here today going through very, very difficult trials. Walking through pain. And some of those trials have been long. And some of them feel insurmountable. God, we know that trial is temporary. And we know that you will give grace every moment and every step of the way. Persevere us in our faith. God, may we continue to trust in you. May we not question you. May we not grumble. But we know that you're the good Father who provides for everything we need. Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.